Welcome to episode 51 of the Missio Nexus podcast. Well, I sure hope you had a great Reformation Day as this podcast is uh, airing after the 1st of November. Uh, today's sponsor for the podcast is Twassistant, and I've talked about them before, and you know that I use their services. Uh, we have a Twassistant, and uh, th- this organization provides you with outsourced administrative help. And for us, it's been a real game changer. We have a person who lives uh, over in the Philippines and works with our team, and she has just been awesome to work with. If you want more information, you can use WhatsApp or you can text the CEO directly. His number is 416-877-8261, and his name is Nigel, and he'll set you up with some additional help. Well, on today's interview, uh, we're going to be talking about CPM, church planning movements, and DMM, disciple-making movements. And uh, before we launch into that interview, I just want to remind everybody that uh, you know, Missio Nexus is a large and diverse network. Uh, today's perspective is going to be kind of a pro CPM DMM perspective, and uh, we're more than willing for others to present a different view. And if you're interested in doing something along that line, let me know, and uh, we we can set up a podcast interview quite like this one. So, without any further ado, here we go. Well, today it's fun to talk to an old friend. We have Dave on the call. Uh, he writes under the pseudonym Stephen Steinhaus. Now, this is not the same Dave if you heard the debate that we did at the Missio Nexus Conference on church planning movements. Uh, this is a different Dave. Um, and our topic is going to be church planning movements today and uh, more probably specifically disciple making movements. And so, first of all, Dave, welcome to the call. I'm so glad you're with us. Thank you very much, Ted. It's great to be here. I've been looking forward to this. So let me start with kind of a basic question, and that is, how did you yourself get engaged or involved in this topic of church planting movements? Yeah, so my wife and I have been long-term overseas mission workers. We started in 1990, uh, initially with Frontiers, and then later we switched over to Pioneers. And we had been living in the field about 15 years and doing everything we could figure to do uh, in our kind of traditional models at that time, what you could call an incarnational or perhaps proclamational approach. And things uh, in some levels were going well, but in other levels were not going well. When we began to hear rumors of movements happening, especially up in Northeast India. So I was introduced to David Watson uh, by Stan Parks, names which I'm familiar, many of our listeners are, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with. And, uh, Stan asked me to come to a meeting in Jakarta where there was about a half dozen of long-term field workers who met with David Watson. And Watson was talking about what was happening in Northeast India, and we were sitting there stupefied, wondering if it was possibly true. And uh, we had lunch together. After lunch, I began to ask my critical questions. And we basically spent the afternoon with me Dave debating David Watson. And at the end of the day, essentially, I think I can say that I lost. I was, uh, all of my concerns were answered very well by him, both theological and missiological. 
and yet I wasn't sure it could work in Indonesia or in other places outside of India. Perhaps the Indian continent, subcontinent is just a, a group of more religious people and they're willing to do these crazy things and other people aren't. So that began a pilgrimage for me uh, of learning about DMM and uh, maybe I'll pause there and uh, but that was how that's how I initially got into it. Okay well let's uh Let's do a little snapshot of what might be happening in the missions community. So obviously there's been some controversy out there, but, but you know, there's many people that are implementing some form of it. What do you see as the current status of um, CPM and or DMM in the missions community? Well, well, I think it's important to keep this in perspective. As you're aware, Ted, and many of our listeners will be, the number of churches and Christians that are really engaged in what you could call Great Commission mission work, is quite small. And then out of that small percentage of serious engagement of Great Commission work, you have a much smaller minority of people focused on UPGs, unreached people groups, and then a smaller smaller minority of people trying to do something that could be called a church planting movement approach. Um, of course, there's different ways of trying to get to church planting. DMM is one of those ways that is working quite well among Muslims in particular. Uh, but yeah, we're talking quite small numbers of people here overall. Sometimes I think the amount of hype or concern that people have about CPM or DMM in particular is a bit exaggerated. At the end of the day, we're all on the same team. We're trying to figure out how can we bring Jesus to the nations? How can we see Matthew 24, 14 uh, be fulfilled? So. I would say there is definitely a growing acceptance of CPM by uh, more and more organizations and workers, but the amount of people that are seriously doing it and applying it remains quite small. Uh, another comment I guess I'd make is the question of backlash or pushback. Um, I'd say overall, uh, many, many people, including increasing body of, of scholars are open to it or even favoring or acceptable to it. Uh, but there remains some uh, folks who are quite concerned about things as we saw in that debate that you guys hosted a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. do, do you think, um, so I'm gonna, let me ask you this. What do you think are the, the best critiques about the CPM DMM movement? The best critiques. <clears throat> in other words, you know, I mean, obviously, there's people that have strong feelings that it's not a great strategy, and you've heard mm -hmm. those. Um, what do you think that they are saying that may have some validity to it? Yeah. So, first of all, let me say that I started off, as I mentioned already, very much as a staunch critic. In fact, I did not believe what David Watson was saying. I had gone to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, I had my master's from there, and I believed I knew what was right. I'll put that in quotation marks, what was uh, good doctrine, uh, things like this. And uh, when he was talking that morning there in Jakarta, I was convinced that uh, he was really off. Um, but as we really talked things through in the afternoon, I came away with the distinct feeling that I was the one who was wrong. Um, I had limited God. I had not believed that these things were possible. I had absolutized my own experience uh, because I was not seeing great breakthroughs and nobody around us was at that time. Uh, I became pe pessimistic and negative, believing that these things could not happen. 
And I think there's a fair amount of people who were kind of in my shoes about 10 years ago who were sitting there saying, you know, I wish these things were true, but I just really don't believe it. And uh, many of them perhaps, are, or some of them at least, are, are guilty of absolutizing their own experiences. What they've not seen, they don't believe it can be happening elsewhere. Um, I also believe that uh, a fair m amount of the critiques are actually based on isolated incidents of um, bad practice, the kind of things we do not train people to do that we speak against, but still people tend to do sometimes, or misunderstandings or caricatures. I hear a lot of straw men type arguments where people say, well, all DM advocates say this. And I literally say to them, I don't know who's saying that. I don't know who you're talking to. Um, I think one of the great problems is that uh, many folks uh, who have these misunderstandings and caricatures are not really willing to sit down and talk with folks like you and I, Ted, who perhaps have a broader view and uh, could disabuse some of their misunderstandings. Having said that, I think there are some legitimate criticisms. One of the ones that I'm very sensitive to and really work to make sure doesn't happen is this thing of uh, over-reporting. In fact, in our first level training, you've been to that, Ted, you've seen how we do it. We teach people to use what we call circle diagrams for men, and we differentiate churches from discovery groups. Defining a church as being a group of people that have committed together to obeying all the commands of Christ, including those things that are often uh, considered uh, sacraments, so baptism and Lord's Supper. So we differentiate these things, and the people that I've trained keep track of those things. And then the follow-up coaching and mentoring that goes on is constantly looking at them. So I was literally uh, texting a guy in Pakistan this morning and asking him for his updated circle diagrams. And he said, I'll have them to you next week before our next mentoring call. So those things become the basis on which I coach people. And I'm asking them very detailed questions about what I see there. Sometimes there's things that don't make sense on those diagrams, and so I ask about them. Uh, so this idea that, um, uh, that of over-reporting is something I'm very sensitive to and very, very opposed to myself. We work hard not to see that happen, and yet I'm, I'm aware that certain organizations uh, do overstate things, uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Perhaps they're just an organization of optimists, but... Um, that's a concern um, that I think is legitimate, but not just for DMM people or CPM people, but for Christians in general. I can go on uh, about more things if you want, Ted. I feel like I've I, I mean, I'd be curious. One of the one of the things I think the opponents have said is they attack the the biblicalness or yeah. the, the you know what are you what's your response to that? Yeah. So. Uh, one of the criticisms of DMM, and I'm going to talk about DMM in particular here, which is one of the ways which the Lord is using, I believe, to lead to CPM. So a disciple. What, yeah, why don't you unpack what you mean by that? Okay, a disciple making movement strategy or DMM principles uh, is one of the key strategies that's being used effectively to reach Muslims and start church planning movements among Muslims around the world. So it's a strategy that leads to an outcome, which we call a disciple-making movement, which leads to a church planting movement. So it's both a strategy or a set of principles, DMM is a strategy and a set of principles, that leads to outcomes, disciple-making movement, leading to church planting movement. So it starts with people becoming disciples of Jesus in their groups and households usually, 
And then those groups uh, over time become healthy churches. So that's how a DMM becomes a CPM. Um, anyway, one of the criticisms is that these are not biblical. I think, in fact, the opposite is true. We see movements throughout the New Testament. It's just that we people uh, from the West who are used to building-centered church, we don't see um, what's happening in the New Testament. Uh, this is where I often refer people to uh, my advisor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and I did my doctor of ministry with an emphasis on missiology under Craig Ott. Dr. Craig Ott is head of the PhD program at Trinity, and um, he talks in his book, Global Church Planning, that, there, that Paul was involved in at least four movements. And uh, I'd, I'd refer people to read chapter four of that book, Global Church Planting, where he uh, outlines his thinking there. But I'm raising that because uh, I think most people who are not kind of oriented to movement thinking don't see what is, in a sense, in plain view in the New Testament because of their own worldview or their their Western Christian glasses, where Craig Ott uh, details um, at least four movements happening in the New Testament. I've read other scholars that believe that there's more in the New Testament. Um, I think one good example of this would be uh, the, the spread of the movement that we see where it, uh, the gospel moves from Jerusalem up to Antioch in chapter 11 of Acts. And then the response to the Jerusalem church is to send Barnabas, who then goes and finds Saul, and works with the folks there. So I think that's, there's very much movements happening in the New Testament. There's also church planting happening in the New Testament. Uh, I would argue, and many people do, uh, that uh, Paul's strategy was actually not so much evangelism as it was multiplicative church planting. And that's how he could talk of certain areas being reached as he established uh, a network of house churches in leading cities in the Roman Empire, which then uh, had a tendency to spread out from there in order to reach whole provinces. And that's apparently is what happened in Acts 19, where it says that this went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Scholars believe that the province of Asia at that time, uh, the time of writing the book of Acts, was probably about 12 million people. So I think it's very clear that we actually do see movements in the New Testament if we can kind of take off our Christian worldview glasses uh, and see what's there. So one of the places where the gospel really took off was, of course, a place called Berea in Acts 17. And I would say that the discovery model, in my opinion, is based on kind of a Hebrews 4.12 concept that the word of God is what's living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And that means that the word of God, the New Testament and the Old Testament is the most effective curriculum, the most effective evangelism material. And it's more effective than anything I can write or kind of consolidate and put together or any human can for that matter. It's divinely put together and has this special power in it. And it's also more effective than my sermons, especially when I go cross-cultural, because no matter uh, how long I've lived in a certain culture, I'm still an outsider. I'm still holding uh, an American passport and still have a lot of assumptions and background that uh, seep out when I'm talking. And as much as I may try to deculturalize my message to bring, as it were, the pure gospel to people, the fact of the matter is that they see uh, a white guy from America talking, 
and they filter what I'm saying based on the reality that I'm a foreigner, and I seep out aspects of my culture. On the other hand, in the discovery model, what, what people are saying, and I think makes good sense, is that as much as possible, we want to get them the word in bite-sized chunks so that they can move from creation to Christ in a way that they can understand, where they can process it together with their family uh, over time. So we're not rushing them. You have to make a decision right now today, uh, but we're allowing them time to process. We're allowing them group process uh, method where they can sit with their family or their significant group and be able to process uh, what the Bible's actually saying. So what we do is we challenge people uh, lost people by saying, hey, have you ever actually read what the Bible says? Would you be interested with your friends and family looking at it? And so Hebrews 4.12 kind of provides a key paradigm for that. But I think another one is in Acts 17, where, um, uh, where Luke notes about the Berean people. It says the Bereans in Acts 17.11, they were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness, and examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So I think that's really exactly what's happening in, in DMM movements. I'm going to talk specifically about DMM. My comments are all kind of in the DMM direction. Uh, but that's kind of how it happens. People meet evangelists or workers, church planners, whatever you're going to call them, out in the field. They talk about things. And uh, many people will accept this, uh, some of these ideas with great eagerness. We see that in different parts of the world course, more than others, uh, some with higher levels of eagerness than others. But then what we're encouraging them to do is to be like these Berean people who went back to examine the scriptures every day to see if what we're saying is true. I literally say that to people. Don't believe me. It really doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what God thinks. Let's look back at his word. So I'd say those are some of the key ideas that DMM is trying to capitalize on to kind of minimize the role of far outsiders, foreigners, and to maximize the role of the scriptures themselves doing the talking, as it were, or doing the speaking and preaching as, as groups sit and read and study the Bible together. In just a minute, I want you to tell us a little bit about your conference, but before we get there, um, what do you see happening? So one of my missiological uh, foundation blocks for strategy that I always suggest to young aspiring missionaries is, um, you know, the strategy that you're thinking about using when you go, how would you apply that in your own context before you try to, you know, put that on somebody in another context? Yeah. What do you see happening within our own culture, U.S. and Canada, in terms of DMM, CPM kind of work? Um, do you think it's a strategy for us? Yeah. Um, that wasn't one of the questions you told me you were going to ask, Ted. I know, but, you know, hey, you got to be ready for anything. <laughs> In season and out of season, brother. Um, yeah, I think this is one of the great evidences that this is a work of God in our generation. We now have strategies, these CPM strategies, that are working around the globe. And it, it creates the opportunity to be able to really uh, – focus on doing the exact same behaviors here in the States or wherever your sending country is, applying these strategies right here and now with lost people and before you go overseas so that later when you learn the language and you're in a different culture, you already have, as it were, the muscle memory to do these exact same things. So let me illustrate that. 
uh, I'm living in the Chicagoland area. We have about a half a million uh, Muslims here, as well as many other unreached people groups from around the world. Uh, very diverse population. I'm meeting people from around the world literally on a daily basis, and I love that. It's great fun. But I'm doing exactly the same kind of things that I was doing in Indonesia. I have spiritual conversations with people as a matter of life, as a matter of my daily uh, practice, my spiritual practice of living out loud. And then as I find people that are interested, I ask them what I call the golden question. Would you and your friends and family be interested in looking directly at the person that says? It's amazing how many people will say, yeah, I'd love to do that. And then we start these discovery groups, either with weak believers who don't know what they're doing or why they even believed, or maybe they said they believed to get asylum here. <laughs> uh, or maybe they're seekers, um, but we start these groups, and then it's our joy to continue discipling people through these uh, Discovery Bible Study groups. That's exactly what we were doing overseas, and exactly how we train people to work overseas. Um, I think the big obstacle here in the States is that the church is so powerful and has such a strong cultural pull that if people are not um, going to a building-centered church, Many of them, including myself, if I'm honest, often feel guilty that we're not, quote, going to church on Sunday. And so we know, all of us know, uh, from what the Bible actually teaches, and yet our own language betrays us as we talk about going to church. And uh, as a mission worker overseas, I, of course, was not expected to show up in a church building every Sunday, let alone help out, preach sermons, uh, do various things around the building. But here in the States, uh, supporting churches very much expect that out of us. And on one hand, we're happy to do it. We care about these people. We care about those uh, congregations that meet there. On the other hand, it does, in fact, slow us down. It takes our attention off of the field, and it creates a model where the people we're working with find out that we're involved in these institutions, and um, they might be drawn in as well. And so... We all know that this idea of bringing Muslims to church is, in fact, probably not the greatest strategy. It's certainly not going to lead to movement. It often leads to extraction of individuals who then might become disciples, might not, but it doesn't lead to multiplication. And yet here in the States, the whole uh, structure is kind of set up in such a way that it's pulling us as workers and the people that we're discipling into that model which does not lead to multiplication. So since I've been back in the States working this for about last year, um, quite honestly, I've been quite frustrated to see uh, how few people really want to do the necessary activities out in the field, starting discovery groups with lost people, following them through, as opposed to simply inviting people to church. And I think that's one of the key reasons we're not seeing movements in the U.S. Uh, as much as we are overseas. Wow. Okay. Tell us a little bit about your conference. I know you held it last year for the first time. Is that correct? Yeah. So we have a summit. We call it a DMM or Disciple Making Summit. If you want to find it on the internet, just type in DMM Summit Chicago and it will come up. The website is dmmsummit.org. It's called Multiply DMM Summit 2020. We had it a year and a half ago uh, in September of 20. What is that, 2018? Yeah, September 2018. And uh, we're going to have the second one this March here, actually in the Wheaton area uh, of the western suburbs of Chicago. 
We intended this to be a, a Chicagoland conference because we have about 10 million living in this great metropolis. Estimate, you know, probably one to two million believers here of various stripes and colors. Uh, many, of course, are evangelicals. We have a lot of great evangelical institutions, and yet few people understand what DMM is or really have any idea of what God is doing in movements today. And so that was really our primary audience that we were shooting for in our first summit. What happened was we had about 350 people come. Two-thirds of them came from other parts of the country, some from nearby, Wisconsin, Indiana, Michigan, et cetera. But we had people literally coming from around the country and even uh, about 10 people from overseas. And so realizing that, uh, we're very happy to have people from outside of Chicagoland come. You're all welcome. Uh, but help us, especially in the great city of Chicago. Many of you have friends and contacts in this city. Help us by telling them about this important event. Uh, Scott McKnight, who of course has written, uh, I believe, over 50 books, and these are theological books, not popular books. Uh, Scott McKnight is one of our plenary speakers. The reason I've asked him to speak is because he wrote a book called King Jesus Gospel, which I believe really brings the pendulum back from what he calls a soteriological gospel, where we're just trying to get people saved into a more full-orbed biblical story uh, of the story of Israel leading to the story of Jesus, leading to our story, which transforms everything when Jesus becomes king. So McKnight will be talking on that. I'm very excited about having him. And then Shadanka Johnson, who's a major movement leader out of Sierra Leone, West Africa, started thousands of churches there up to 28 generations. Uh, in terms of a DMM success story, he's one of the greatest. Incredible guy, uh, wonderful brother, man of prayer. He will be here with us also as a plenary speaker. And our third plenary speaker is perhaps the most radical guy we're gonna have up on the stage. His name's Chris Galanos. Chris wrote a book called From Mega Church to Multiplication, where he took the training materials that I and others have been using around the world and uh, has led his church through those. And uh, I don't have the story exactly right, but he led a mega church to become a multiplying church. And uh, a church of over 4,000 is now become a DMM network of house churches. And they have over 100 groups with lost people down there in Texas, and they're going great guns. He is an American pastor. Um, but an incredibly radical brother. So the conference will start Thursday night with a concert of prayer. We always talk about uh, if you want to see a church planning movement, you need to start with a prayer movement. And so this is how we did it last time. We're doing it that way again. It was a great success. We spend the whole evening prayer and in worship, but primarily in prayer. And this will be led by movement leaders. And then we have the uh, all day Friday with plenaries and breakout sessions and a half day on Saturday morning over at noon. So those that are in uh, church-based ministry and need to get back will be able to be there for Sunday. Well, that sounds great. We'll put uh, a link in the show notes, too, for those people that want to see that, uh, get that um, site. But Dave, thank you for being on the call with us today. It's been an interesting conversation. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much, Ted. I really appreciate the opportunity and look forward to hearing uh, what people think. All right. Well, Lord bless. Okay. Bye-bye. Right uh, now, we're going to talk about a question as well as something I like. 
before we do that, just want to highlight a few things going on in the Missio Nexus world that you should be aware of. The first is an Emerging Leaders event that we're conducting. It'll happen here in Orlando, where I live. And it is uh, for leaders who are, let's say, not CEOs or not COOs. We actually do a lot of things for them. But we realized there was a hole there for the development of new leaders. And so the Emerging Leaders event happened last year for the first time. And uh, we're, we had some really great reviews and great input. And we're reworking it and rebooting it. It will happen, as I said, in February. The details are on the Missio Nexus website under events. Last month, we also published a church mission leaders or a CML report um, about what's happening among really it's mission pastors, although we tend to use the word mission leaders because in a lot of churches, they don't use the term mission pastor. Um, you're going to want to grab that report. There's plenty of great information. It accompanies our CEO report that was released the month before, and those are both great resources for you to consider. Well, today's question um, is one that I got on a phone call with a CEO a few weeks ago, and uh, this particular CEO is looking at reorganizing their organization, and he asked me, is there a right size for a missionary organization? Now, that's a really great question, actually. Just the fact that um, it's being thought about and considered um, is, to me, really powerful and really fantastic. Um, is there a right size? Well, let me just say that in the uh, missions world, I would say we tend not to think along this line because there are so many missionary needs out there that we tend to simply assume that we need more people all the time. So you could break this question up and you could say, well, is there a right size perhaps for a home office or a support team? Um, or if your purpose and objective isn't simply to flood the world with missionaries, uh, then perhaps right-sizing questions become a little bit more clear. Let me just say that in our day and age, there is a change about uh, sur well, change surrounding the size of companies. It has to do with we're leveraging technology to do far more with far fewer. And of course, the big tech giants, probably not Google or Microsoft or Amazon so much, but some of the platform-based companies like uh, Airbnb or Uber are examples of companies that have incredibly large valuations with relatively small staff sizes. So my challenge to ministry leaders today would be to think about whether or not there aren't new models emerging that let you that let you do a lot more with fewer staff members. Um, I'm looking at Missio Nexus as an, as an example. Uh, we have six staff members in total, um, but we outsource a ton. And sometimes when people find out that we only have six staff members, they're rather shocked. So to answer the question, is there a right size for a missionary organization? I would say it's a question that leaders should be asking. It's going to really depend on your context, of course, and what you're trying to accomplish and what your big picture objectives are. Um, and I do think that there are times when you might want to limit the size of your organization in order to achieve the kind of results that you want to see happen. Okay, now time for something I like in this Months is maybe a little bit different, but I bought Kanye West's new album, Jesus is King, mostly out of curiosity. I am not necessarily a rap aficionado, but I have been reading and just watching the reaction, 
in the popular culture culture to his uh, coming out as a evangelical. And, and, and he is coming out as an evangelical. I, I don't think there's any doubt about it that he's not using that term, of course, but it, it, the way he's talking about his faith, it's, uh, it's just incredible to me. And it's fun to watch uh, just how people are responding. Now, the album itself, to me, it's an eclectic mix. You know, you think that in the old days of CDs, you know, a band has a style and a format, and when they you buy a, the, their CD or, you know, digital collection or album, whatever you're calling it, it would all kind of be the same style. And this thing is all over the map um, from uh, old school gospel music to rap, um, just crazy stuff going on here and there in the music. I enjoy it. I wouldn't say it's the kind of thing I would just put on and, and have in the background. It's It more, I'd say, demands your attention. Um, but I, I have liked it. And I would encourage you, if you're at all interested, uh, to, to buy a copy and uh, enjoy it yourself. So that's what I like. And uh, I guess that's our podcast for November 2019. I hope you have a blessed day wherever you are.